Hey, it's Gil from the Mind Buzz. Today's Mind Culture and Social Podcast. And you're listening to Pods Like Us. Welcome to Pods Like Us. I'm Martin Quibell, known to my friends as Marv, and this time I'm joined by a guest who, between the ages of 13 and 18, was a professional ring announcer of his father's independent wrestling organisation, the Pennsylvania Champion Wrestling, and who, at the age of 17 years old, announced a WWF, now known as the WWE, match at Lehigh University in front of 7,000 people. My guest has previously taught political science at the University of Texas, High Point University, and Guilford Technical Community College in Northern Carolina, or North Carolina. Currently, my guest is the Executive Director for Institutional Effectiveness at the George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia, where this animal lover lives with his two Jack Russell Terriers, Maya and Kerry. I'm happy speaking with the creator and host of the show, From the Swamp to the Swamp, Mr. Matthew DeSantis. Thank you for being with me today, Matt. Marv, thank you so very much for having me, and uh, thank you for a wonderful introduction that really brings back a lot of memories uh, back in the old days of Pennsylvania Championship Wrestling. I'm so glad, and I hope I got every one of those facts correct. <laughs> you did indeed, you did indeed. Uh, like I keep saying to people, I do my research. <laughs> indeed you do. No, you even got the dogs' names right, so very impressed. Thank you very much. So, what was your first introduction to podcasting then, Matt? Uh, well, uh, you know, I think my first introduction to it was actually as a political science professor. Uh, I was teaching at Guilford Technical Community College, probably around 2012, 2013. I was teaching there before then, but around 2012, 2013, I started to hear a little bit more about podcasts as an educational tool, as a way of helping engage students in a different way, rather than just assigning a whole lot of reading. This was a way of having them listen to experts talk about different issues or to educate themselves on international or domestic affairs. So that was kind of my first introduction to podcasts, but I can't say I really started listening to podcasts really until about 2015. 
Uh, and then I started listening to them pretty consistently. And I just, you know, I find new podcasts, it feels like every day. Uh, and have a pretty large rotation that I try to listen to regularly. So it's been, uh, yeah, about six years now since I've been really listening to podcasts all the time. So how did you go from being a podcast listener to actually starting your first podcast? Yeah, it's a good question and, and kind of a interesting story. So my family started producing a lot of content and I was you know, living in Texas at the time. And my, uh, most of my family was in South Carolina. And so a lot of my interaction with them was obviously over social media. And I suddenly realized like one day I logged onto Facebook and my stepmother had a YouTube cooking show. And I thought, well, that's surprising. <laughs> I didn't, nobody told me about this. And so I started following that. And a couple of months later, my dad started doing his own podcast, uh, Snapshots. And I thought to myself, well, this is quite curious, you know, that everybody's doing these podcasts. And so I talked to my brother, Nathaniel, and he expressed an interest in, you know, he was young, he had just graduated from college and was kind of in between jobs. And so he, real passion for wanting to produce and develop content, you know, whether that be YouTube shows or podcasts. And I was in a position where I had just moved to Northern Virginia uh, for my job at George Mason. And I thought to myself, you know, this would be a great way to engage with the family, to be honest with you. And it's something that I've always wanted to do, but I didn't necessarily have the technical know-how. And that's what Nathaniel had. Okay. And so it took a lot of pressure off me to not have to worry about learning how to you know, edit and push out the content on the various platforms. Uh, that somebody else could do that for me. And, uh, you know, there, there's a limited number of things that I can talk about. Uh, I could talk about professional wrestling. I could talk about politics and I can talk about sports uh, in general. But I thought politics might be a good one to talk about. And obviously, we had a very contentious and a very high profile presidential election in 2020. And so uh, about a, 10 days before the election is when I launched my first episode of the podcast uh, in October of 2020. And uh, I've been doing it weekly ever since. And it's just been a real blast to grow and develop as a podcaster and to learn how difficult it is in some ways, but then also just come up with you know innovations and tricks and ways of making it easier for me as I do it and uh, to collaborate with Nathaniel and the rest of my family. So it's been just a joy to, to make that transition from listener to producer. So how would you describe your show to people? And are there any shows on the radio or television or anything that have inspired you in the making of your show? Yeah, that's a great question. So I I would describe my show as an independent-minded political view of what's going on in the United States. And, and I also occasionally will cover international stories as well from mostly Europe, but, but sometimes across Asia and Latin America as well. But I do try to come at things you know, like you said in the introduction, I was a political science professor for a long time. So my goal is never to try to make people think a certain way. Uh, I, I am genuinely a, a pretty politically moderate person. And so I never came into the classroom with an agenda. And I always thought professors who did that were doing a real disservice. Uh, you know, my job was to teach students how to think critically, not to have them think that the liberal perspective or the conservative perspective was better than the other. That was for them to decide. Uh, and so I try to take that same approach to the podcast. Uh, I typically cover 
know, somewhere between three and five stories a week, uh, just kind of giving a little bit of background, perspective, a little bit of my analysis, try to help people unpack some of the stories that they're seeing in the news, but they might not understand why they're contentious, why people are arguing about them, or the history behind them. And so trying to provide that perspective. But the show is typically about uh, somewhere between 45 minutes to an hour uh, in length. And then I do two episodes a week. One episode is devoted to breaking down the latest political stories. But then the other uh, episode, which comes out on Thursdays, is an interview, or typically with a subject matter expert, either an academic or a journalist or a politician uh, or an advocate or a policymaker. And so trying to you know have them gain some insights as well. So uh, it's been a lot of fun. And in terms of motivations or guides, you know, I would say, honestly, one of the podcasts that I probably borrowed the most from was a podcast called Binge Mode, uh, which was part of the Ringer podcast network. And it has nothing to do with politics. Mallory Rubin and Jason Concepcion were the hosts, and they would cover things like Game of Thrones or Harry Potter or Star Wars. They do a lot of like fantasy stuff, and they do these really, really in-depth deep dives into each episode or each chapter of the book or each episode of the show and uh, the movie. And so it was just, it was really well-structured, I always thought, and really crisp. And I just always appreciated their tone and how precise they were with their language. And that's something I really tried to model. And and I script my shows. Uh, and I part of the reason for that is that I, you know, I think when we talk about politics, it's so important to be precise with our words and not to, you know, just say things off the cuff because they might sound good or because they might, you know, uh, win an argument, but because they're factually accurate. And so I do, you know, script my shows, but I try to make sure that it's still pretty loose and uh, that doesn't sound like I'm just reading off of a script or anything like that. But uh, I, I just binge mode was a real uh, influence on the way I like to structure my show and the the tone of it. Yeah, I think that's a good thing that you are scripting it because in that way you are trying to get to specific points and if it was unscripted, it would be easy for the person you're interviewing to possibly ignore the point or gloss over the point and come up with something that they've got rehearsed as a uh, replacement, shall we say, for that uh, answer. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's and I think it's just so important to yeah always be precise when we're talking about politics and you know, we, you know, I talk about at times very sensitive topics, you know, in terms of race and ethnicity, uh, gender, uh, uh, you know, economics. And, and these are sensitive issues for people. And they have, you know, they bring about very deep emotions and very serious emotions. I want to be respectful of that on people on both sides of the political spectrum. And so, you know, I think being very precise with your language, being very careful with the words you choose is important. And it's respectful to people on both sides of the political aisle. And uh, yeah, just something that I, you know, I've i tried a couple episodes where I just do more of an outline. Uh, and I, I still just like the idea of scripting it. It just helps me, I think, think through my ideas a little bit more thoroughly. And uh, it just works out better for me. But, you know, I, I know, you know, uh, those of us in the Amalfi Media company, you know, different shows, I know my dad has kind of a very, very loose outline. Nathaniel and his, his co-host, Joey, typically don't have much of an outline. So, uh, you know, whatever works for different people. And, my, you know, my sister has, a, I think she scripts her show too, because she's dealing with finance and numbers. And so that has to be very precise as well. So 
it just depends on on personal preference and the topics that we cover. Yeah, and I think there's also a thing with politics where there's a leaning towards people who don't always answer a question, uh, should we say, in a straight manner. They will work away around the question. And a lot of people, sometimes when they, wa- when they watch programmes or they listen to programmes, they like a show like yours that will just get to the point and tell them what they need to know rather than avoid it, should we say. Yeah, absolutely. The focus of my show is never to have an agenda. It is to be informational. I think in that way, it's an extension of me and my background from teaching. You know, it's not as professorial, perhaps, as just a typical lecture, but it is it's something where I like educating people. And that's ultimately why I got into the profession that I did. And I, you know, I now kind of, as you mentioned in the introduction, kind of have moved into more of an administrative role. And so I don't teach as much anymore, but this has been a real outlet for me in some ways to still teach or to still educate and communicate uh, important ideas with my listeners. And uh, it's something I take very seriously. And it's it is something that I don't want to let them down in terms of you know being inaccurate or being uh, you know biasedly partisan one way or the other, or only giving them one side of the story and not the other. And I, I try to be very even-handed with my approach and. Uh, you know, t- can be critical of both political parties and both ideologies at different times on different issues. So uh, just try to be straightforward with my audience. I think I owe them that much. And as you said, unfortunately, there's a lot of media out there today that does try to avoid those sorts of things on both sides. And they only want to give you one perspective. And I think that's just such a disservice to the to the public and to the consumer. So uh, the podcast that I do tries to cut through that. So when you're arranging these episodes uh, what sort of research do you do before and and how do you arrange the guests that you get in for those shows yeah yeah so in terms of my tuesday shows that are like the weekly breakdown of uh, politics typically about halfway through the week before so i typically record on like a sunday evening and then the episode comes out tuesday morning so typically middle of the week i start putting together a little bit of an outline of these are the stories that I'm most interested in talking about, or these are the stories that I think are the most important. And then I start to consult a lot of different sources. Uh, I'll try to, you know, do research. Uh, You know, fortunately, I follow this stuff, or maybe unfortunately for my own sanity sometimes, uh, I follow this stuff really regularly. And so a lot of it, I kind of already have a basis of knowledge about. And so I'm able to pull on that in some cases. But, um, you know, I try to consult different sources, conservative, liberal, moderate, you know, wherever, to try to get different perspectives on it. Uh, And then I try to really kind of root into the different facts of the case. And, you know, the sources will come from different places, depending on the type of story I'm covering. But again, I'm, I'm fortunate in that, you know, I went to graduate school for political science and taught it for about 10 years altogether. And so, you know, that gives me a background in this so that when we talk about something like the filibuster, for instance, in the United States Senate, well, that's something that I've lectured about for years as a professor. So I know lots about the filibuster, so I don't have to do much additional research, which is kind of nice. But yeah, I, I try to kind of, like I said, by the middle of the week, have an outline and then really start to hone in on the details later in the week and over the early part of the weekend before recording on Sundays. And then in terms of the guests that I line up, again, I'm very fortunate that I have a lot of people that I have got to know professionally and through my 
graduate training that have really interesting jobs. And so a lot of my guests to this point have just been people that I know or that I share a connection with. You know, we went to the same school or we went, we have similar backgrounds. Uh, I know them in a professional setting from my time teaching or my time in graduate school or my time as an undergraduate. So I, you know, I'm, I'm just very fortunate that I, and some of them actually, one of the, my guests was a former student of mine uh, who has now gone on to be a politician in the state of Tennessee in the United States. And so it's been great to kind of talk with, you know, people from my background, but then I also at times will reach out to different organizations. I had a guest on recently from a national organization called Headcount that does uh, voter registration drives. And so I just reached out to that organization and, you know, we went back and forth a little bit before the interview and, uh, you know, we're able to record something. So, um, yeah, it's, it's just been a, like I said, I've been fortunate that I have a lot of people in my sphere that I know that I think are really interesting guests and have a really interesting backgrounds and backgrounds in very different areas of politics and, and who also have very different political perspectives. You know, that's one thing I'm very proud of that we've had some conservatives on, we've had liberals, we've had libertarians, we've had moderates. So we've had people from all across the ideological spectrum. And I think that really enriches the experience for the listener to get those different perspectives. And those shows that you do on Thursday, they are differentiated because you call them the faculty lounge. Yeah, I do. And so the whole point of it is I think that so oftentimes when you hear interviews, that's why I really like your show, Marv, uh, because I think so many times interviews, particularly in politics, are sound bites. You know, I used to get interviewed for television sometimes when I was a professor, you know, the, the local television station would come out and they would interview me for some story and uh, that, you know, maybe there was something going on in the state or, or, you know, a national election. And I would talk to the reporter for like, I don't know, 30 minutes. And I would watch the news that night to see, you know, I'm a little vain, I suppose. I would like to watch myself in the news. So I'd watch the TV that night and, uh, and they would use, you know, 15 seconds of what I said. <laughs> and so it just, you know, it's like, oh, well, that's not okay. I mean, it's fine that they use that 15 seconds, but geez, I said a lot more than just that. And I just feel like as a faculty member, I was so blessed to have so many wonderful and really in-depth and nuanced conversations. And I just feel like people don't see those types of conversations uh, in political podcasts or in political media anymore. You know, they see these very combative interviews on cable news, or they'll get these interviews in which everybody's just agreeing with each other, uh, but they only get them for two or three minutes at a time. And I just thought, you know, I want to create something where there's that space for people to listen to each other and to have these really in-depth conversations that are nuanced, that cover a lot of different topics. And that's something that I remember doing a lot as a faculty member. So that's why I called it the faculty lounge, but, you know, giving people that opportunity. So a lot of times those interviews sometimes go, you know, from 35 minutes to sometimes over an hour. Uh, you know, I, I was, one of my interviews was with, uh, a uh, law professor from Princeton University. And, uh, you know, I think we talked for over an hour about the Supreme Court and civil rights and uh, some of the you know Black Lives Matter protests that were taking place in the United States. So uh, it was just, you know, very in-depth, nuanced conversations uh, that I think ultimately the goal is to help educate the listener. 
So you've got qualifications in political science, then that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I went to, so my undergraduate degree was in political science uh, from Furman University. And then I also uh, got my graduate degree in political science from the University of Florida. So I studied it for a long time, taught it for a long time, published in it for a while. And my, my specific area of focus in terms of my own personal research or my academic professional research that I did was on religion and politics and evangelical politics in particular here in the United States. And so that's something that I enjoy talking a lot about. I've not talked about it a little bit on the show. I, I did devote an episode to talking about religion and I've had a couple of guests on who share my research interests. Um, but that's an area that I, that I hope to kind of expand on in future episodes a little bit more too. So, uh, you know, it's it just, it's great to have that background and then be able to pull in people who also can teach me something, you know, that's the really great part is when I have on some of these guests, some of the questions that I ask them they're because I want to know the answer. I mean, sometimes I already know kind of what the answer is going to be to some extent, but a lot of times I'm asking because I want to know. And if I want to know, I, I think my listeners want to know too. Yeah, it's like me. I'm, I'm talking to people whose shows I've listened to, and I want to know how, how their shows are put together. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And it's 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 so interesting. That's one of the things I've really taken from your show is just listening to the oh, so many different approaches to how they do it, and uh, and it's just so interesting to see how different people approach different shows in, in their own ways. And uh, you know, some of it's their personality, but some of it's just the the structure of their show and and how they envision it and yeah, it, it's incredibly helpful for, I think, anyone who's thinking about uh, starting a podcast, but even I think people who are just consumers of podcasts, I think it's interesting to hear how other people conceptualize their shows and develop them. Yeah, people can come from different angles and do things differently. It's like, um, I remember completely off topic here, but I remember hearing a story about... Uh, a conversation between uh, Dustin Hoffman and Laurence Olivier on the set of Marathon Man, where Dustin Hoffman turned up to set and he was sweating and he was, you know, panting away like this. And, and Laurence Olivier said to him, good God, man, what's wrong with you? And he said, oh, I've just been on a run so that I can look right for this scene. And then Laurence Olivier said to him, dear, it's called acting. You don't need to go through all that. <laughs> so it's the two completely different ways that something's done, which is the same with podcasts. You, so people will approach acting in a different way. So you'll have method and uh, the traditional way of acting, same as you've got different methods used in podcasting. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. No, it's uh, absolutely right. And it's uh, it's great to hear that those different backgrounds and approaches. And I think it's something that you know makes me... And it was similar, I'll be honest, it was similar with teaching too, uh, that when I was teaching... I, you know, no two professors taught alike, uh, that we all had, we brought our own personalities to the classroom. We each had our own strengths or weaknesses. Uh, you know, some people were very good lecturers. Other people really liked doing a lot of group work in class and liked having a lot of conversation and individual participation. And so it was, every classroom was different and one wasn't necessarily better than the other. Um, but they were just very different experiences depending on which professor you might have had. So uh, it's something that I've seen in that kind of part of my professional career as well. The thing is, in an academic sense, um, I still remember when, when I was at school that there are certain teachers who you would look back on as an adult and you'll think they were important 
to my education and the reason why they were important is because they're individuals and the way that they did things is individual and that's why you need different individuals teaching in colleges in schools and in universities absolutely uh i i like you had a very similar experience in terms of looking back on my own educational career and you know sometimes there was the class that you you don't assume is going to make as big of a difference that does i mean there was a there was a class that i took in college on history of latin america and it was taught by this professor who i really loved uh, eric ching and he taught the class through art. It was essentially an art history class, but I didn't know that when I signed up for it because it wasn't advertised as that. It was just his method of teaching the class. And so he would teach us about what was going on in Latin America by having us interpret the art that was being produced in the country at that time so that we could see how the politics of the time in the country was being reflected in the artwork. And it was just an endlessly fascinating class. One that I, you know, this is now 20 years later, I still remember vividly and uh, just meant a lot to me. And it was just such an impactful class, even though it wasn't something that I ended up going on to study much more of. Um, although I, I do have to say, I think I he unlocked an appreciation for art that I don't know if I had at that point. And now that's something that, you know, I love doing, going to local art museums and galleries and learning more uh, about artists from different eras and their motivations and their uh, the pressures that they were under societally. And so, uh, you know, it, it really did unlock something personally for me, maybe not professionally, but personally it did. So uh, those are those kind of special moments that you look back on and you go, wow, that class really did have a, a big impact on me. And, and certainly as an instructor, as a professor, you, you hope that you have that experience, you know, generate that experience for your students. And then you're not going to be able to do that for all of them. But, uh, you know, I know that there, I've had students in my career that will come back and, you know, a year or two later will come back and uh, they'll tell me that, you know, because of my class, they decided to vote this particular election. Uh, I remember I, I had one class, uh, one student, I should say, who, you know, came back almost three years later after my class. I thought he had graduated and he came back and said, I wanted to let you know that today I voted for the first time in my life. And it's because of your class. And it just made you feel, I mean, you know, all the papers that need to get graded, all the work that you have to do, it all kind of melts away in those moments. Those that, those are the moments that, you know, invigorate you as an instructor and as an educator uh, and keep you going forward. So, uh, you know, you hope you can be that motivation for others because there certainly were those motivations for me growing up. Yeah, essentially what you're learning and the qualifications that you get, that's just the first step to what you will eventually become. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think it is so it, it's interesting. I think there's a different approach to education sometimes in the United States than there are in other countries. And I think that's even within the United States, there's a real struggle sometimes where people want to equate what you study with your career that you will eventually have. I think there are some people who are very literal about education and, or want it to be a very transactional process where I'm going to go to school and I'm going to learn to be an engineer and then I'm going to graduate and I'm going to be an engineer for the next 45 years of my life. And there are people who can do that. And there are certain professions that are like that. Ultimately, in our economy today, most professions are not like that. So you will go to school and you will study something that you are interested in. But just because you study political science, just because you study 
sociology or history or anthropology does not mean you are going to be an anthropologist, a sociologist, a historian, or a political scientist. Um, you're going to go into different fields, and your career is going to go in different directions. And the, the hope is that what you studied may not give you, you may not use the content of what you studied all the time or for a very much of your work career, but it's the underlying skills that you develop while you're at university here in the United States uh, that is so important that you learn and develop critical thinking, written and oral communication, teamwork, uh, creative thinking, innovation, um, problem solving, ethics. These are important things to learn. And, uh, and that is ultimately what's going to support you in whatever profession you end up in. Uh, that, you know, I think, you know, young people today are entering an economy where I believe studies have shown on average, they're going to have between 10 and 15 different occupations, not just jobs, 10 to 15 different occupations during their lifetime. So they need to have an education that's flexible. And, you know, thinking of the education they get in high school, at a college or university as being the basis for that, I think is so important. And that doesn't mean that there's not very beneficial elements to, you know, very straightforward vocational training. Like I said, I, like you mentioned, I worked at a community college for six years and, you know, there were students who would come and, you know, they want to be a nurse or they would want to be an auto mechanic and they would take classes to do that. And then they would go out and do those things. And that's wonderful uh, to see the students do that. But I think it's also important that we don't think of education in such a transactional way, uh, but rather as a way of trying to provide a base of knowledge and information for them so they can go forward and excel in whatever occupation they choose. Yeah. It's what shapes them into into what they will, will become. And the easiest way for people to learn something is to make it something that they are interested in. It is. And that's something I would, I would do a lot in the classroom. I, I would tell a lot of stories. Uh, I didn't like to just kind of lecture straight. I like to, you know, I'd like to make things fun and I'd like to, make a point, but I wanted to tell stories. Sometimes the stories were quite personal about my own experience, my own background, my own family. Um, and, you know, students would remember that. And I remember one time I would, I would, uh, I used my brother and sister who are much younger than me, uh, as examples of how different States, um, you know, would, would behave differently in, in the country. And so I would always use this example and, and it's funny, they still are kind of like this. So my sister, Sarah, uh, she's gotten better as she's gotten older. But when she was younger, my sister, if you had told her, Sarah, uh, we're going away for a couple of hours. When, uh, when we come back, we'd like for you to have your homework done and for you to have practiced your piano for an hour. Well, we, we would have come home. The piano would not have been touched. The homework would not have been started. And, uh, but she would have managed to like text all of her friends and like, you know, be on social media and do all these other things. And, you know, with her, you really had to be right over her shoulder when she was a kid, you know, and be like, Sarah, get the book out, you know, open the book to page 53, Sarah, start, the, you know, start your homework on page 53, Sarah, I'm setting a timer for you to practice your piano, you know, things like that. Whereas my brother, if we told Nathaniel to do the exact same thing, we would come home. The homework would be on the table, the piano would have been practiced, and in all likelihood, he would have just been sitting there staring out the window because we didn't tell him what else to do. Um, he was just that type of kid. And so 
you know, I, I'd explained this and I'd said, you know, some states are like my sister, you know, they can be very irresponsible. They're not the best states in terms of how they decide to spend their money or what they decide to spend it on. And some states are like my brother, Nathaniel. And so I used to have Sarah states versus Nathaniel states. Well, I remember students coming back, you know, five or 10 years after they took my class and they would still remember Sarah states versus Nathaniel states. And they would still talk to me about this. And so, you know, you try to make it something funny and relatable and because, and, you know, everybody, you know, most everybody's got siblings and, you know, it, it just makes something that's relatable in their everyday lives. It takes a concept that might be a little bit, you know, abstract or just uh, pedantic to understand and make it a little bit more fun. So absolutely. It's like um, uh, somebody I was talking to who, who's a friend of mine uh, and I was saying about because they're a music teacher in school and I said to them that in some ways I think uh, I think that the standard way that uh, they teach music in the UK can be a bit old-fashioned, should we say. Mm. And I said that uh, in some ways it might be good if it, if it looks more to the... You know, no, I said, I said, classical music and the classical uh, way of looking at music or, or traditional is a good thing. But I said, if you could um, possibly include a bit of contemporary as well and show how contemporary and the classical uh, sort of how they are linked in a way through the music... I said that might make it more appropriate for them in themselves and they might learn better if you make it more appropriate to their way of life, essentially, and what they know. Absolutely. I think you know, teaching political science, was that was always a struggle because it was, you know, you teach a lot about, you know, not to be too crass about it, but you teach a lot of dead white guys. Uh, you know, you teach a lot about guys who live back in the you know, 17, 1800s and, you know, they're not very relatable when you're teaching to, you know, a group of students who have very different ethnic and racial backgrounds and genders. And so it's, uh, you know, it's about how do you take those stories, make them relatable, update them, make comparisons to modern, uh, you know, examples uh, and, I think that's true in history too. That, and that's one of the things I really love about my dad's podcast snapshots is that I think he is able to take history and make it very relevant and make it very colorful. And that's, uh, I think, uh, honestly, I see a lot of, it's probably not surprising that I kind of rip him off a little bit uh, with the way I used to teach in class because, you know, he used to, he enjoyed telling me these types of stories when I was a kid growing up. And it's something that I think I would uh, replicate in a lot of ways when I got into the classroom and tried to, you know, make political science, uh, make it, you know, come alive a little bit and uh, make it relevant. So you absolutely have to bring in those modern examples because you just can't kind of say, well, this is what happened on this date. And this is this person, and this is their background. And, you know, this is why they're important. And, yeah, you're going to lose your class in about three minutes if you try to do that. So you you better come up with something that uh, catches their attention, makes it relevant to their lives, and, and can update it in some way. Even if something's old, you can always make it new. <laughs> I'm now picturing your dad doing an early version of snapshots in front of classes now because he's because he's also taught, hasn't he? He has, yeah, he has taught, and and he, uh, yeah, he's taught at Furman University, some of the continuing education classes there, and. Uh, and that really is honestly a big, that was a big motivation for him, uh, to do the, 
the podcast was really taking some of what he was already doing in that sense and just doing it in a different platform. And, you know, he always was great with that. I mean, I just remember even going back as a kid, both my parents were great storytellers. And that's a, a gift that I, I hope I picked up a little bit over time. And uh, they, they both just can tell stories in a way that engage people and make people laugh, make people think. Uh, they both enjoy history a great deal. So, uh, you know, having that kind of historical perspective and knowing, you know, kind of obscure figures who have played important roles in history is it's just a way of bringing history alive. It's probably why I love history as much as I do, because I had two parents who really instilled that in me from a young age and who made history interesting uh, to me. And uh, I remember growing up in Pennsylvania and one of the most important battles in the American Civil War uh, was in Gettysburg. And that was probably about an hour and a half from my house. And I remember going down there with my parents uh, to a reenactment when I was probably uh, eight years old. And, and for your listeners who are not from the United States, this, this is going to be a very bizarre practice because I, I don't think many other countries do this. Uh, but we reenact uh, battles from our Civil War uh, for fanfare and for kind of to celebrate it. And so I remember going down there and my parents just teaching me about the different generals and the different personalities that they had and the different stories of their backgrounds and just falling in love with it. And uh, I remember dressing up for Halloween when I was eight years old as Ulysses S. Grant, uh, who was a a very famous Civil War general and eventually the president of the United States as well. So, uh, you know, that was something they instilled in me from a very young age. That's brilliant. That's great. So going back to your show, then you actually said that it's Nathaniel that does the editing. So how do you record it and get the show to, uh, to Natty? Yeah. So I will record, uh, like I said, on Sunday afternoons, uh, and I typically try to record the interviews so- over the weekends or late at night, uh, or not that late at night, but in the evenings, depending on my schedule. So I will record on a platform called Zencaster, and then I will also record my audio file on Audacity. And I will have both of those things open at the same time, and then I'll have my script in kind of a Microsoft Word document. And I'll be just kind of scrolling through my script, reading off of that and kind of going off of it a little bit from here and there. But yeah, so I'll kind of record that. Uh, If I occasionally I'll, you know, mix up my words a little bit and I'll kind of stop and make a note and let Nathaniel know, oh, cut that last part or do something like that. But I I try to record just in a straight shot. So typically it just takes me about an hour or so to record the episode. And then I just, you know, export those files, drop them in a Google Drive for Nathaniel, and he does his magic with the rest of them. Then when I wake up on Tuesday mornings, they're magically in my podcast feed. So uh, (laughs) he does the magic. He does the hard work. But, you know, and I, again, I think that makes it a lot easier for me, you know, because I'm obviously, like I said, I have a full-time job. And so, you know, my time to record is really kind of in the evenings or over the weekends. And so it's nice to have someone like Nathaniel and his skill level to, you know, develop the YouTube channels and to, you know, do the videos and to do the, uh, you know, to do all the podcasts and schedule when they're going to go up and all the technical work, which is, which is so difficult. And he does that for all of our podcasts on the Amalfi Media Network. And so it's a real credit to him for being able to juggle all of those responsibilities. But, you know, like I said, from my standpoint, I just kind of record in a straight shot at one time and typically takes me about an hour and 
and then it's just off to already thinking about what I'm going to do the following week. That's brilliant. So, um, do you actually listen to your show yourself or not? Yeah. That's an interesting one. Yeah, it is. Uh, and I, I do. Uh, and I listen to it for a couple of reasons. I listen to it because I always just like to hear how it turned out. And I like to just make sure. And I, the other part of it is, and Nathaniel, because he is so, you know, he's doing so much in terms of the editing, he doesn't edit for content a lot of times. What I mean by that is, if I say something like, uh, just the other week, I said something like, I mentioned the 13th Amendment. And I luckily, I caught myself while I was recording. And I realized, oh, no, I meant the 15th Amendment. But like, I like to listen to make sure that that I said everything correctly uh, because there have been one or two times where I'll listen to it and I'll realize, Oh crap. I said that person's name incorrectly or, Oh, it should have been this number instead of that number. Uh, and I will very quickly re-record just that little maybe sentence in, in some cases, and I'll send it to Nathaniel and he will kind of on the fly edit it and push it back out uh, with the update. And so uh, I do listen to it for that reason. And I like to listen to the interviews too, just because that's something that I'm relatively new at doing. And so it's nice to listen to those interviews and just get a sense of, oh, I'm talking too much in this, or I'm not asking the right questions, or, oh, I should have let them go on a bit more here, or maybe I should have asked a follow-up question there. So I always try to make notes for myself about what I could do better uh, and and kind of how I could structure the shows better, uh, both my Tuesday show and the Thursday show. So uh, I do listen to them. Uh, and then I also, uh, God bless my mother. She listens to all my shows and then she calls me <laughs> the, the evening after and she gives me, uh, kind of critiques. And so she's, uh, she's very helpful in that regard. And I always appreciate that because it's great to have somebody else listen to the show and give feedback as well about what they liked and what they didn't like and, uh, ideas. And, and, and I always, you know, bounce ideas off my dad too. And, uh, you know, he'll always give me updates about sections he liked or sections he didn't like. And, uh, and sometimes it's just because he doesn't like uh, the politics that I that I talk about. But uh, but we have fun with it. And so, yeah, I, I do listen. But, uh, you know, it's something where I, I used to listen, I think, a lot more carefully early on. And now I listen just for certain things. Absolutely. Like you said, you're in a different situation to me where I edit my own show. So I know what's going out when it goes out. Mm -hmm. Whereas with you. Nathaniel's editing the show so you're almost double checking to make sure that he's changed that little bit there that you needed changing yeah yeah no that happened a couple of weeks ago that happened where um for some reason like the, uh, the video that he pushed out on YouTube was kind of the raw file and so it was like me because a lot of times when I start recording like I start talking to him and I'm just like, hey, this week I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And like, I kind of give him some notes and I'm like, oh, you know, make sure to edit something this way or make sure to edit something that way. And I remember I clicked on the YouTube video and fortunately I was like the first person to watch it. It was right after it got posted. And it started out by me going, hey, Nathaniel, um, it's just me. And like, I'm, and like, I'm describing this and I, I texted him right away. I was like, hey, take the YouTube video down. Like you posted the wrong one. And so it was, uh, you know, kind of funny, but uh, he was like, oh crap, I don't know how that happened. And he's like, I'm so sorry. I was like, oh, it's all good. You know, we, we caught it. And so it's nice to, you know, double check with all that sort of stuff. But uh, yeah. And like, and like I said earlier, it's, you know, it's important to me that my facts are correct and that my, uh, you know, the things that I talk about are done so accurately and, um, just going back and re-listening to shows is, 
is helpful just to make sure that I did say everything correctly and, and say it the way that I wanted to say it. <laughs> I'd be scared stiff if uh, the, the raw footage sometimes of some of my shows went out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fortunately, the right version went out on the podcast. and It was just on YouTube. Uh, that had the raw version, but yeah, it it made me laugh. And he, you know, and God bless Nathaniel. He's so you know earnest about this stuff. I mean, he was so apologetic, and I got the new version up right away. And so, uh, you know, it was just it was just one of those funny things that happens. And you know, out of the hundreds of podcasts that he's edited, I think that was the only time this happened. So, uh, you know, he's got a pretty good batting average for that sort of thing. Absolutely. For anybody listening, Nathaniel edits from the swamp to the swamp. No fear cooking, no fear finance, snapshots, um, dinner and a dot, 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 binge bros, and now mundane madness. I think that's all, isn't it? Is it? It is for now. Yeah, I think there is. Yeah, for now. So he is he is a very busy young man. And so he yeah manages to edit all these uh, audio and video and pushes all of them out on the different platforms and does all the editing and does all of the uh, social media work. And so it's been a real, uh, real lift for him. And, and it's been just uh, so great uh, to, to work together as a family though. I think it really has brought us so close together and, and we're excited about the show mundane madness because that's the first show uh, that Amalfi is producing. That is not a family member, you know, that, that it's from people outside the family. So we're thrilled to uh, to welcome some new people to the Amalfi Media family, but uh, you know those those first core shows. Uh, it was just such a great way to bring us together, and, and especially during a pandemic. You know, this was all happening, you know, starting right around the beginning of the pandemic. And so, you know, my sister now is in Indiana. I'm in Virginia. Nathaniel and my uh, stepmom and my dad are in uh, South Carolina, and. But despite the distance between all of us, we talk constantly. You know, we have a text thread and we're, we're chatting every day about the different shows and different ideas. And Nathaniel's updating us about the company and about, um, you know, how we're doing on social media and how we're doing on downloads. And it's just, it's been brilliant to stay so connected with everyone. And just, it really has meant a lot at a time when it's been so difficult to travel and see family. I feel like I'm talking to my family more than ever. So that's been a real great benefit of all this. Okay, so what other podcasts do you listen to, Matt? So I am a huge uh, sports fan. And so I will listen to a lot of sports podcasts uh, about the Philadelphia Eagles and the Philadelphia 76ers, who are two of my favorite professional teams. So there's a great podcast that I love to listen to called The Rights to Ricky Sanchez. And it's about the Philadelphia 76ers. It's a very, very uh, kind of niche podcast uh you really have to be a hardcore philadelphia 76ers fan in, in basketball uh to to really love that show and, and the really and to really understand the podcast in a lot of ways there's a lot of inside jokes that if you're just a casual sports fan you may not understand um so i listened to that i listened to um uh listen to a couple podcasts so i listened to a political podcast called the bulwark uh with charlie sykes uh that's a really interesting podcast I think he's got on a lot of pretty interesting guests. He's a former Republican who is, uh, you know, I would say kind of would fall into the category of what we call in the United States kind of a never Trump Republican. So kind of somebody who's conservative but did not support President Trump. Uh, and so he's got, I, I think, kind of an interesting perspective. I enjoy listening to that. 
Uh, and then I listen to a bunch of kind of pop culture podcasts. So uh, the podcast called The Big Picture, uh, which covers movies and the Oscars. Uh, I always love kind of learning about that. And, uh, and then another one called The Rewatchables, uh, which is about movies that are endlessly rewatchable. And they kind of revisit those movies and talk about them. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I just, uh, yeah, the other one is, um, oh, uh, the, oh, now I'm forgetting the, the name of it. I'm having to pull it up on my phone very quickly, but it's, uh, kind of a comedic podcast. Uh, and it is the, uh, the Jesselneck and Rosenthal Vanity Project. And that's another one that I really enjoy. Uh, comedian Anthony Jesselneck, who's a pretty big comedian here in the United States. He and his, uh, friend, Greg Rosenthal have a podcast. Uh, I find that very funny. It's kind of an irreverent uh, sense of humor. So, uh, yeah, those are a few of the ones that I listen to. And and then, of course, I have to listen to all the Amalfi ones or else I'll be behind on the family conversation. <laughs> so I always have to stay up to speed with that, what everybody else is producing. <laughs> so what advice would you give to people starting a podcast for the first time? Uh, that's uh, it's a good question. I actually just have a friend of mine who it's interesting about an hour before we started doing this, she reached out to me on social media and she said she was starting a podcast and was looking for tips. And so, you know, I would say that it's important to have a sense of what you want your podcast to be long-term. I, I think sometimes, at least for me, that was important, you know, to think about not just, you know, sometimes I think people go, Oh, I have something to say. Okay, do you have something to you, you might have something to say today, but what are you going to say next week? What are you going to say the week after that and the week after that and the week after that? Or or you know, if you're doing it bi-weekly or monthly, you know, what what do you have to say? You know, what is the tone of your show? What is the theme of it? What's the focus of it? And to really spend a lot of time outlining that and thinking about it. Um and I think particularly you know, depending on how you're going to do the show, you know, are you going to do it with a partner? So you're going to have somebody to riff off of, or are you going to be doing it by yourself? I think doing it by yourself is a real challenge. That's something that, you know, my dad and I, have, have, you know, both have to deal with, with our shows because it's just us for the most part. And, you know, I don't think anybody just wants to listen to one person talk for 45 minutes or an hour. So how do you develop different segments? You know, how do you pivot from one story to another? How do you change tones? How do you uh, keep the listener engaged for that long? Uh, and how do you give them natural breaks to kind of stop so they, they're not like, you know, pausing the podcast mid-sentence. Uh, and so that's why a lot of times on my show, I have, you know, three or four different segments so that you might just listen to a segment for 10 or 15 minutes and then stop and then listen to my next segment for another 10 or 15 minutes. And, you know, uh, Blaine has that on snapshots where, you know, one snapshot's usually eight to 10 minutes. And so you listen to that and then you stop if you need to and listen, you know, come back to it and listen to another snapshot after that. So, um, thinking about those things is so important. Uh, and then just, you know, obviously there's the technical part of it too, is just, you know, doing a lot of your research into how are you going to record this? How are you going to push it out? How are you going to promote it? Uh, and having a real, you know, well-designed structure for that, uh, when you, when you get going. And that doesn't mean that you have to stick to that the whole time. I mean, I think one of the things that Nathaniel's done really well is, constantly adapting, constantly changing, constantly evolving. And, and I would say that's true with the podcast, that don't fall in love with your original structure and original idea. I mean, my shows have changed significantly from when I started to now, and that's okay. You kind of learn as you go along. So, you know, spend some time developing that framework and having an idea of what you want, 
but don't be afraid to change it once you get in and go, oh, that's not going to, that's not quite working the way I thought it was. Uh, and so, you know, th- that would be some of my advice uh, in terms of, uh, you know, people who are interested in starting. And, you know, just, again, I think the final thing I'll say is, you know, have a point of view, you know, have, a, there's so many politics, you know, Marv, you know, this, you consume so much. It's, there's so many podcasts out there uh, about every topic, you know, about politics and about pop culture and about sports and about, you know, history. And there's so much. Give people a reason to listen to your show. Why are they listening to you? Uh, what are you bringing to this conversation that others may not be bringing to that conversation, whether it be your background or your perspective on this, uh, you know, or, or the way you're going to cover it. So I spending a lot of time doing that and, and trying not to just imitate a, a popular podcast you enjoy, uh, but really branching out on your own and having your own voice. Absolutely. Uh, picking up on something that you mentioned earlier on, I've just thought when you start doing podcasts for the first time, if you do, I had the problem when I first started where people said and you didn't pick up on where you could have gone off on a tangent in a way and gone into that a bit more but that's one of those things that you get used to over time and eventually I mean I was doing that because I was always thinking oh I've got to get this point this point this point and this point out of the way and initially you might start that way with you know you've got to get these points and they they almost cloud to a certain degree you've got to get those points out of the way but over time you're able to do that but it's almost like that second nature that you're looking at that list of things to get the points into the conversation but you're also listening to what's being said at the same time so that you can go slightly off script so to speak and look into those areas that suddenly appear that you never expected you're so right. And that's something that has happened to me on both of my shows or both types of episodes I do, both my individuals as well as my interviews. You know, sometimes when I'm scripting an episode, I will start talking or I'll start kind of because a lot of times I'll dictate. Uh, and so when I'm dictating and kind of doing the script, I'll realize like, oh, man, I've spent like 10 minutes talking about this one topic. And it's because I've kind of gone off on a tangent that I think is really interesting and, and worthwhile. But in my outline, I might say, geez, I was planning on covering, you know, five or six stories this week. But, you know, maybe I just go, you know, maybe I need to just pull back. And maybe I'm not going to do as many stories, but I'm going to do kind of a more in-depth dive into the stories that I am choosing. So rather than doing five or six, maybe I just do three or four. Uh, but it allows me the flexibility of going down those tangents and going into a little bit greater detail and not feeling like I need to try to cover all of the information. Uh, and that's something that I think also with mine, I, I remember early on, I was really, I was always so worried because politics changes so suddenly. I was always worried that by the time the show was published on Tuesday morning, something I said when I recording would be irrelevant. And I remember one time, I remember like calling Nathaniel like Monday night, like right before the show was got, got about to get pushed out. And I said, oh my God, something happened in politics and I have to change what I said on the podcast. Um, and, you know, there was some breakthrough or some negotiation had changed. And, I, you know, I had spent time talking about it and, and now it was kind of irrelevant. And I, I really spent time over the last month or so you know, changing my mindset on that and going, listen, I'm going to talk about what I want to talk about and I'm going to do it in such a way that it's kind of timeless 
And so even if there's some political developments in between the time I record and the time it's published, it's not the end of the world. And I don't need to worry about, you know, bothering Nathaniel you know, at two o'clock in the morning on Monday, you know, uh, to, to re-record something. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. And then you're right, you know, with the interviews, you know, I, I have a script, but then, you know, sometimes somebody will say something and you just have to kind of go off on that because it's such an interesting point. And you just go, there's something else there. That person has a lot to contribute and, and a lot to say there. And, you know, maybe that comes at the sacrifice of a couple of questions later on that you had scripted, but that's okay. Because uh, I always want my guests to feel like they're really engaged and that we're having a conversation and that we're just kind of riffing off of each other. So, um, yeah, it, 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 you're right. It, it takes some time, I think, to develop those skills. Absolutely. Anyway, where can people find your show and how can they get hold of you? Yeah, so uh, you can find our show on any podcast platform, uh, you know, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, whatever platform you use to get your podcasts, Amazon. Uh, you can find it from the swamp to the swamp is the name of it. And the reason I call it that is because I went to grad school at the University of Florida and in American football, they have a very popular college football team. Uh, and the stadium is called the swamp. And now I live outside of Washington, D.C., which is also the swamp. Uh, people refer to it as that because of the kind of corrupt nature of politics, but it also genuinely is swampland. Uh, and so I've gone from one swamp to another. So from the swamp to the swamp, you can find it on podcast platform of choice. And then you can find all of the podcasts for Amalfi Media on our website, which is just AmalfiMedia.com. And uh, there's something for everyone from history to finance to cooking to politics to pop culture to yeah just everything under the sun you could imagine so if politics isn't your thing well, still check out amalfi media because there's a whole lot of other stuff that's really great content there that's great thank you thank you very much matt thank you for talking with me today yeah marv thank you so very much for having me i really appreciate your time thank you very much and thank you everybody for listening and hope you listen again to another episode of pods like us Marv, how you doing? I'm I'm okay. Sorry about the mix up with the time. Sorry. I apologize for that. I was I was consulting Google and it was giving me very conflicting answers. <laughs> so. Yes. I was just uh, on a show called The Mind Buzz in there. They were asking me about uh, how we're going in the UK with the, the the COVID and we're talking about how it is in America with COVID and all sorts of other things as well mr trump came into the conversation quite a bit oh i'm, I'm sure he did yes <laughs> yes he did <laughs> yeah i'm sure yeah. so yeah how are things going over in the i have a friend in the uk who i keep up with pretty regularly but how are things going for you over there um i've had my uh i've had my first uh vaccine getting the oh, second good. one in june i think it is okay and uh we're we're coming out of uh, full our third full lockdown next mm. Monday allegedly. 
um, <laughs> yeah. into a uh, sort of softened tier system. And then they're hoping to have everything back to normality by June. But uh, I think... Um, I think everywhere in the world, I don't think it's going to go back to how it was before for a long time yet, because I think there's, there's an innate fear there within people, I think, and, you know, because mm-hmm. of the way that things have been and people have got so used to the mask. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I, I've been saying that to people for a while, that I, I think it's, in a lot of ways, I think we're going to start looking much more like how Asia's looked for quite a while where, you know, if you've traveled over there, a lot of the people wear masks, you know, and have been for years, decades. Uh, and because virus outbreakouts are so much more prevalent over there because of exactly what happened uh, this time around as well. And so, yeah, I agree with you. I think, you know, large public gatherings, you know, being inside for you know, indoor stadium shows, you know, things like that. I just, uh, yeah, I, I think there are certain people here in the United States, at least, who are going to be very eager to get back to the way things used to be. But yeah, I think it's going to be quite a while. And and I think there, there are just some things that we've picked up during the pandemic that I don't think are going to leave anytime soon, like the masks. Uh, and I think, you know, on the positive side, I think people have realized that working from home is, you know, possible and that can save a lot of overhead for companies and uh, and be any, they can be a little bit more innovative and flexible. And, and I, that's a good thing. You know, so, so there have some, been some positives, some silver linings in all this. I think it will be better for the environment as well if uh, oh, yeah. employers could actually take note of uh, how some places such as call centres and Mm -hmm. businesses have been able to actually still operate during the pandemic with a lot of people working from home as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Yeah, I mean, the only... (laughs) It's funny, you know, coming to podcasts, the only downside is I used to listen to my podcasts when I was commuting. And now I don't have to commute anymore. So I had to carve out some more time in my day for um, to listen. So that was that's the only downside. <laughs> yes, I've, I've got the names of your dogs in the introduction to the show, actually. <laughs> Wonderful, brilliant. I've done my research. Uh, indeed you have. <laughs> Kerry and Maya, two Jack Russell Terriers. Absolutely, absolutely. What was I going to say? Nathaniel does a very good job of getting all these shows out. He really does. He it's it's incredible. He does a great job, and uh, you know we we ha- we're going to have a little bit of help over the summer. Uh, he managed to get an intern uh, that's going to help with some things, but now he's done an amazing job uh, juggling all of our shows across multiple platforms in terms of YouTube and the, and obviously the various podcast platforms and social media. And so he's done just an incredible job coordinating all of that and, and making sure it's all on a schedule and, you know, he's got it all figured out. So it's, yeah, he's been doing a great job with it and he's definitely found a calling and something he really enjoys and loves to do. He's done an amazing job. He has. I think what he's doing with the, uh, the video side of things is very smart really to uh, consolidate it. Uh, because then not only does it cut down on his own work, but it also is good advertising for the shows that people might not know are out there. I mean, your your mum, your mother's uh, cooking program is yeah. that 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 is incredibly popular. So from that, the other shows might get more interest. Absolutely, no, that was the whole idea. And what's interesting is a lot of my listeners 
had no idea, even though I would be mentioning Amalfi Media all the time in my introductions, and obviously though there are the links in the episode notes, a lot of my listeners, I just realized probably about a month ago, they didn't know that it was a family operation. And so yeah. they, you know, suddenly realized like, oh, my dad has, you know, other snapshots. And so, you know, they would go and listen to my dad's and like, oh, this is great. And so um, no, I think the more we can get people from, you know, who are fans of the individual shows to realize that there's other content out there. And, you know, not everybody is into politics. Not everybody's necessarily into history or pop culture, but, you know, there's something for everyone for the most part. So, uh, you know, and, and there's also something that's, you know, maybe just very timely. So, you know, with politics, maybe you don't want to listen to a weekly political podcast, but maybe there's, you know, a particular week where there's something you're passionate about and I just happen to be talking about it. You know, okay, you tune in, listen to that one. Uh, you know, maybe you don't listen to all the others and you don't listen every week, but, you know, something that's there for you that's in the background. And when you're, you know, when that itch uh, or when that scratch is there, you, you're managed, you can itch it. I find it interesting listening to it. I mean, especially as a Brit, because uh, some people might say, well, what are you listening to that for? If it's American politics, I just find it interesting listening to and keeping up to speed with what's going on on the other side of the pond, so to speak. It's well, I appreciate it. And it's uh, it's great to, you know, we have a lot of listeners in the UK, actually. I actually have a fair amount of listeners over in Sweden as well. Uh, so, you know, and a couple in India and uh, we have a lot actually in Central Europe as well. Austria, uh, obviously Romania with my stepmother. And, and so, yeah, it's um, yeah. So it's just been it's been great to and and uh, actually, I think next week or the following week, I'm actually I'm going to have a guest on from over in Sweden, who's a friend of mine, but he's an academic over at the University of Malmo in southern Sweden and uh, kind of have an episode devoted to the EU, actually, and all their uh, vaccine rollout issues and, and things like that. So try to, you know, as much as I focus on American government, you know, and politics, there's a lot of stories going on all across the world that's relevant. So try to educate my mostly American audience about what's going on around the rest of the world, too. You know, every country's got their problems. I mean, they've also Sweden also has seen a, a real rise in uh, far right nationalist parties and a lot of um, you know ethnic tensions that are over there because they're dealing with immigration and for really the first time in a long time. So it's you know not everybody's blonde haired and blue eyed anymore, and it's amazing. Suddenly there's tension now. Uh, so it's uh, it's interesting to see yeah how those countries deal with those issues and and yeah just acknowledging that hey we're all struggling but. You know, it doesn't mean we can't objectively point out some issues uh, that might be on one side of the pond or the other. Absolutely. I mean, the UK is having its own problems post-Brexit, you know, with uh, import and export and yeah. other things as well. So, yeah. yeah. Difficult. Anyway, I suppose I better start the show officially. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Okay. Whenever you're ready. For the first time, I have a full professional introduction <laughs> well, thank you. That's a thrill. Okay. okay, here we go. So, how was that, Matt? Did we get everything? Yeah, I think so. That was great. Did that work for you? I think so. I think that was great. I loved all the, uh, shall we say, tangents that we went off into. And I thought it was brilliant. Yeah, no, I, I had, a, yeah, had a great time. And that was, uh, yeah, you brought up some really great points and, uh, and, and parallels to some other aspects of my life. So, I, I really, yeah, I enjoyed the conversation. I always enjoy talking about. Um, you know, education and politics and podcasts. And yeah, this was wonderful. 
Me too. I, I enjoyed coming out with some of the things that I mentioned as well, like the, uh, the bit about the uh, school teacher teaching music and uh, the <laughs> the story of when they were making the marathon run as well. That. That, that's a great story. I never it heard really that story is. before. That's such a great story. Yeah, I love it that. Is. So, yeah, so uh, like I said, Dustin Hoffman was going all method. And, uh, and then yes, Laurence Olivier, Olivier just said to him, "It's it's called acting." <laughs> I love it. You don't and need they, to go to all this trouble. He said. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> the uh, and when you were talking about the music, I, I I didn't mention it on the podcast, but there's a great story. I'll have to find a link to it and send it to you. But there's a story that Larry King, uh, who was great interviewer. Uh, over here in the United States, he tells about, I think he was interviewing like Leonard Bernstein. He was interviewing like, you know, some great classical musician. And it was back in the 60s. And Bernstein said, the Beatles are this generation's Beethoven. Okay. And it was just like, it was this, and, and Larry King was kind of baffled by that because, you know, the Beatles were still this very poppy, you know, I want to hold your hand, you know, sort of a, a, a group. And he goes, no, no, no. And, and Bernstein was very serious about this. And he said, no, no, no. He goes, they're, the music they're making will be compared to Bach and Mozart and Beethoven. Uh, and he kind of cited Eleanor Rigby as like one of those. Uh, and he referred to it as musical genius. And, uh, you know, it, and it's, it's, it's just interesting, you know. So as much as we teach the classics, you know, it's, it's important to, you know, there is that musical genius, you know, whether it's the Beatles or, or even the people that are, you know, producing music today. So it's... Uh, uh, your point was very well taken. Very well taken. So I'll have to find that uh, uh, video. I'll have to find the video of that interview and share it with you. Oh yes, please, please. Yeah, and I'll I'll include this in the post show uh, as well, and then and then I'll put that link in the show notes as well for people. I think that's oh yeah, that'd brilliant. be great. Yeah. I th- I think that people have a tendency to um, even today class classical traditional music as completely different to pop music whereas when you look at music by people like the Beatles you'll see the I don't know what your musical sort of knowledge is like but you'll see uh, chords that mm-hmm. that they use and harmonies and melodies that you know that are a bit um, advanced for for what people would class as pop music should we say Absolutely. I mean, there, there's so much of that. And you see that across so many different types of musical genres. And, uh, yeah, there's, there's actually, there's a good story about, um, the musician, uh, and hip hop star LL Cool J. And he was doing like an unplugged where there's no, uh, like an unplugged, uh, it was, that was a popular show on MTV back in the day, but he would, um, but there was no electronics, you know, it was just all musicians and so here's this hip hop artist that has traditionally, you know, relied on, you know, beatbox and, and kind of all of this electrically generated music uh, in terms of his beats. And it was amazing to watch him in very real time. And you realize he was a musical genius because he was suddenly telling a trumpet player, no, you need to go down an octave. You need to do this. We're going to do this on a three eighths beat. We're going to do this wow. on this beat. We're going to. And he suddenly was arranging the musicians around him to replicate the sound that had only been generated on a, on a, on an electronic board before. And, uh, you know, you, you hear similar stories about Prince and people like, you know, who are, who's just a brilliant musician, 
Uh, and so yeah, these guys, I mean, it, it's so interesting. The music today might sound a certain way, but so many of these uh, artists have just such a deep and thorough knowledge of music uh, and just a really brilliant understanding of it. And uh, yeah, I, I think you're right. We don't fully appreciate that in the moment a lot of times. And it's not until years later that we look back and realize the brilliance of it all. Absolutely. I mean, that's why you'll find a classic uh, legend like Bob Dylan name-checking Alicia Keys on one of his songs. It's because of her incredible background in music and her knowledge of it. Absolutely. And and it's... I think that's great to see, you know, when, when classical artists, you know, or, or, you know, classical, you know, uh, or artists, a little bit more established artists will kind of recognize, um, you know, the, the artists of today for the genius that they have. And and I know, you know, people have done that recently with, uh, the musical artist Lizzo, uh, here in the United States, you know, she's really blown up and, uh, it's just a really big, you know, hit, but she's so much more than a, a hip hop star. I mean, she, and a pop star, I mean, she really knows her music and is this, you know, just brilliant singer and, and has a real gift, but also just knows the underlying music and the chords and the melodies that she wants to use. Um, and there's a reason that, you know, there's a reason the beats and the, the sounds and the harmonies of popular music are so appealing to us. And it's because it's rooted in something so intrinsic that was always there, you know, going back to uh, classical music and, and the, you know, even before that. So, there are certain sounds and harmonies that just resonate with people and that we find very appealing. And so it's, uh, you know, it all is one large tradition. So it's uh, always interesting to kind of break that stuff down. It is. Anyway, Matt, thank you for, for this. I'll uh, let you get on. And, uh, yeah. I think this episode will be coming out very soon. Oh, okay, great. Well, like I said, Mark, thank you again. I really appreciate the time. And uh, it was a real joy talking to you. And my dad says hi. Thank you very much, and it was great talking to you as well. You take care and stay safe. You do the same, Marv. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.